Uh, stay, sticking with Advent here and uh, trying our best not to let the, uh, take stock of the uh, reality, the often very dark reality of the world as we look forward to, to the light of Christ bursting in. And so we're going to uh, continue that theme today as we talk about the good news of judgment. Um, John the Baptist, I don't think he would have been a very popular speaker in our day and age. I think he would be one of those speakers who gets invited to a university and his uh, invitation is protested by people who don't want to hear what he has to say. Um, We were at the mall just this past week and I was wandering around in Barnes & Noble, the booksellers, and I was taking note of many of the popular book titles and there were things like, Choose You, The Happiness Project, I Am, The Power of Discovering Who You Really Are, And my favorite, feeling good, the new mood therapy. And to my utter surprise, I did not see any of the uh, titles that I was looking for by John the Baptist. Um, There was no judgment soup for the soul, or waiting for judgment day, or how to flee from the wrath to come. See, in our culture, judgment is pretty much a cuss word because judgment is almost always equated with judgmentalism and nobody wants to be associated with judgmentalism. And so uh, people look at Christianity and they say things like, I could never believe in a God who's judgmental. I could never believe in a God who judges like that. Or I like the love message of Jesus, but I, I don't like what Christianity has to say about all this judgment stuff. But I want to suggest today that God's judgment as we see it in Scripture, is actually good news. In fact, if there's to be any hope for the world, we need God's judgment. This is, in fact, a central message of the season of Advent. Now, Luke, uh, last week we we were introduced to John the Baptist, and we um, we continue to hear from him this week. Now, we know some things about John the Baptist's appearance from other gospel writers like Matthew and Mark. They uh, tell us that he wandered around the wilderness. He seemed like he was kind of a loner. He uh, wore a garment made of camel's uh, skin and camel's hair. I like to think he got that with his bare hands. Um, And he um, apparently ate honey and insects for his diet. All I can think about is those huge grasshoppers we get here in Florida. So... Think um, Tom Hanks and Castaway. Okay. Um, but the point of the descriptions that they're telling us is that John is a prophet. Like many of the uh, eccentric prophets who are called to unique roles to proclaim words of judgment and repentance and restoration to God's people, John falls in line with them. And apparently our eccentric friend is preaching and he is attracting some curious crowds. Now remember he is speaking to an audience of Israelites, many of whom have wandered away from God. And their religion, what has happened is that their religion, their identity as Israelites has become a kind of badge that they wear um, instead of an actual way of life with God that reflects God to the world. And so they get out there to hear John, to see what it's all about, and they hear some words they probably didn't plan on hearing. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Imagine if I started every sermon like that. Um, But he's telling God's people that their lives are far from what God intends them to be. They have been acting, according to John, more like the offspring of poisonous snakes than the children of a holy and life-giving God. So the wrath to come. What is that all about? Well, the wrath to come is simply this. It's God's coming judgment on all that corrupts and perverts his world. 
see, we think of wrath as a emotional outburst of rage, like road rage or something like that. And so we push away that picture of God because we don't want a God who resembles us at our worst when we're peeved about something. We don't like that image of God. But God's wrath is not fickle or emotional like human wrath. It's simply his settled opposition to everything and to everyone through who those things work that persists unrelentingly in the evil that he cannot tolerate. It's his settled opposition to everything that is destroying his creation and his people. So John pleads with his people to not go around and say, hey, we're children of Abraham, so all is well. All is well because we are children of Abraham. John says, God can raise up children from these stones if he wants to. Don't wear the fact that you are children of Abraham, that you are Israelites as some kind of an identity badge while you are you are trampling on the poor and extorting the vulnerable and neglecting justice in just about every area of your lives. In other words, don't claim to be God's people when you are living just like the rest of the world out there. Now, today's equivalent, of course, you can imagine, it would be people who might go around and call themselves Christians and go to church uh, and they actually need to hear this message from John the Baptist. Because if we think just calling ourselves Christians and showing up to church sometimes on Sundays is an automatic free pass into God's kingdom, we run the risk of thinking that the way that we live our lives doesn't actually matter to God. And nothing could be further from the truth. And we also run the risk of simply becoming so comfortable in our sin, so used to it, that we're just comfortable in it. And this is why, this is where the Israelites were, and this is why God sends prophets like John to wake up his people from their slumber. Now, John doesn't tell the Israelites that their situation is hopeless. This is not a message of hopelessness. He gives them an actual exhortation to make things right. They say, what should we do? And he gives them specific things. He says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Start living in a new way. Reorient yourself back to the way of God. Because those who truly belong to him, if you're really children of Abraham, you will show it to be so, not through your ancestry, but by your way of life. You see, when God's people are warned of coming judgment, there's always an exhortation to action. Always an exhortation to action. We're called back to live in a way that pleases God and that brings us back into fellowship with him. You see, words of judgment and repentance, they're not meant to drive us away from God, to cower in fear, but to draw us closer back into life with him because we have gone astray. You see, it reminds us that God does have expectations for the people that he loves dearly and is saving. So then the crowds ask, what should we do? And John gives them some very specific things. He says, for them... The issues were socioeconomic inequality and extortion and greed. And so he addresses those things and tells them to make them right. Give to those in need. He says, stop taking more money than is required from from taxpayers and stop robbing people by false accusations and using violence. Now, here's something to consider for us. What would John the Baptist, if he walked through the doors and came up into the pulpit, what would he say to us here today at our church? What would be the specific things... He would exhort us to do. You see, for John, true repentance results in changed behavior. We um, sometimes think of the word repentance as uh, saying, I feel really bad, I'm sorry for my sins. But uh, in Scripture, repentance actually means to have a change of heart and mind and to move into a different direction. It's more of saying, there's an objective reality and I need to acknowledge and I need to change my life and reorient my pathway. 
It's a very, uh, repentance is very much an active, embodied thing in Scripture. It actually is a change of life and purpose. You see, in the Bible, uh, words of judgment are always acts of mercy. They're, they're, they're like a light that shines in the darkness and says, wake up, something is wrong here. Something is wrong here, and if, if it doesn't change, it's going to get really bad. God's words of judgment are acts of mercy. They remind us that there are real standards that God has for us, real standards of what is right and what is wrong, what is holy and what is unholy. And they remind us that we're often falling short of those standards for the purpose of calling us back. It's in his tender mercy that God calls us back through words about repentance and judgment. Now, if words of coming judgment are meant to inspire change, To turn people toward their Heavenly Father, fair enough, but what do we make of the idea of a final judgment? This is not one of the most popular ideas in today's world. Uh, That we would say, that Jesus would, as we say every week, come again to judge the living and the dead. That he will once and for all separate the sheep and the goats. You see, there's something in us that feels repulsion at this idea, isn't there? There's something in us that feels repulsed by that idea. I think it bothers us. Because we hope, there's something in us that hopes that things will forever continue as usual without any interruption by a just judge who will actually hold us accountable for the way that we've lived our lives. But think about what happens when you remove the judge. Think about this. Arthur Miller, who was a famous playwright, his famous play was Death of a Salesman and The Crucible. Um, He had a less well-known play called After the Fall. And uh, one of the leading characters, Quentin, he said this at one point in the play. He's talking about his life and reflecting. He says, for years I looked at life as a case at law. It was a, it was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart you are or what a good lover you are. Later on, you have to prove what a good father or husband you are. Finally, you have to prove how wise, how powerful, how successful you are. But underlying it all, I see now in all my arguing there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation. I don't know what it was. All I knew is I'd be justified or I'd be condemned for what I'd done. There would be a verdict anyway. Now listen to what he says. I think that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. All that remained, I realized, was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. What's he saying? Quentin is the typical mid-20th century Westerner who's given up traditional ideas of religion and judgment and sin and salvation and so feels liberated to live however he pleases. But... In doing so, he realizes that there are no longer any standards by which to judge his behavior or anyone else's behavior. And he realizes that that leads to despair. Everything becomes meaningless. If there's no judge, who's to say that one action is better than another? Who can say that love is better than hatred or that charity is better than murder? Who's to say? See, if there's no judge who holds us to certain standards, who makes judgments on how we live, then everything is permissible. Everything. Acts of terrorism, child abuse, school shooting, sex trafficking, racism, all of it. And no one wants to live in that world. 
<clears throat> Last week I went to the theater to watch the 25th anniversary edition of that Holocaust film, Schindler's List. No doubt many of you have seen that movie. It's a very uh, painful film to watch, very, very historical and realistic. Um, and I thought, how can you look at someone like, uh, you remember the Nazi lieutenant who's kind of one of the main characters, Amon Goth, in that movie? And um, he, he would just whimsically, just whimsically demand the execution of innocent people. Or he would stand on his balcony from his apartment and, and, and just pick off nonchalantly for sport innocent prisoners. And I, and I look at that and I think, how can you think that judgment isn't necessary? Many people, secular and religious alike, would admit Jesus was one of the most compassionate human beings to ever walk the earth. And they would be right, of course. And yet Jesus spoke of judgment more than any other topic. Something we don't often think about. He spoke of a final verdict that would exclude those who in their pride and self-sufficiency persisted in rejecting his offer of grace and salvation. But friends, this is not what God desires. Uh, And we see that all throughout scripture. For instance, the prophet Ezekiel, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather that they should turn from their way and live? You see, it breaks God's heart to give people over to judgment. St. Peter wrote, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's a a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Wolf. He wrote a very important book in the mid-90s called Exclusion and Embrace. And uh, he he observed uh, in the course of his lifetime as a young man a lot of violence and warfare and oppression against his own people. And um, he wrote about the subject of judgment from a Christian perspective. And I just want to read you a little snippet of uh, what he said. This is very, very profound. He says, God will judge not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they have done evil, but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. You see, the truth is, we need a God who judges. We need a God who is angry about human trafficking and about slavery, about the kidnapping and murder of innocent children, about the structures in the world that allow ostentatious wealth to occur simultaneously with life-threatening poverty. You see, if the world is ever to be made right, we need a God whose righteous judgment will sort things out once and for all in the end. That is the only way there will ever be hope for this creation, for this world to be renewed. Now, We also need a God who will judge the sin in our own hearts, whose word will cleanse us, who will cleanse us of all that pollutes and corrupts our natures. But how could we stand that judgment? Would it not be our condemnation? And here's where the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks in as a light shining in the darkness. Listen to what Jesus says about judgment in John chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. They do not come under judgment, but have passed from death to life. How is it possible? 
How is it possible that we do not come under judgment? That we actually, by believing in him, already pass through judgment from death to life. How is that possible? Here's how. In Jesus, we have a judge who doesn't sit over us, high above us on a bench, looking down at us with a condemning eye. We have a judge who comes down under us in humility, who allows us to trample on him and to put him up on a cross. And he bears his own judgment against us so that when we trust in him, we are set free. We are forgiven. We are healed. We are reconciled to our Heavenly Father. That is good news. I want to repeat St. John's words again. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, Eight months ago, hard to believe it's been that long already, um, when... Benjamin was born, uh, when, when we were going through the process of labor, I ate a snack bar because, you know, labor is very, very difficult on <coughs> us husbands. And so um, I was eating a snack bar and apparently had some chocolate in it or something. And at some point, I, I guess I tapped my nose with the snack bar, leaving a noticeable spot of chocolate right on the tip of my nose. But um, I did not have any idea. I was blissfully unaware. Until one of the midwife's assistants, who after he was born was taking pictures, and uh, she showed me a picture of me holding my newborn son, and I'm smiling there. Only then did I realize what a goofus I looked like. You see, when Scripture speaks of uh, words of judgment and repentance, it's not saying, naughty, naughty, you should be ashamed of yourself. Rather, it's asking us to get in front of a picture of ourselves, of our lives, and ask What's currently wrong with this picture? Where are the areas of my life where I've been shutting out God? Clinging to things that harm me and others. For some of us, it's simply an attitude and a relationship problem. For some of us, it's uncontrolled anger. Uh, For some of us, it's sexual in nature. For some of us, it's our attachment to money or our mismanagement of it. Perhaps by perpetually ignoring those in need. Some of us are struggling. Some of us are struggling with a distorted image of God. And so we stop trusting him and turn to other things for comfort. What is the spirit of Jesus saying to us today? See, whatever words of judgment the church hears, whatever words of reorientation that we are hearing this Advent, they are aimed at our wholeness as the people of God. And they're pointing us toward the just judge whose purifying fire preserves a people for himself, a people who delight in him and he in them. Let me close with the words from the prophet Zephaniah that we heard uh, today. Zephaniah is speaking to a group of faithful Israelites. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that in your care for us, you 
uh, give us, you exhort us, and you challenge us, and you discipline us as a parent who disciplines their children out of love. We thank you that you send words to us. We thank you for prophets like John the Baptist whose words uh, provoke us and wake us out of our slumber that we need to be woken out of, Lord. We, at, we thank you for these acts of mercy towards us. And we ask that you would help us not to view you, um, that, that you are a judge as a negative thing, Lord, but as a, as a positive thing that brings hope to the world that you will sort out good and evil in the end and that this creation will be renewed in hope, in beauty, in all of its glory that you intend for it. And we thank you, Lord, most of all, that you have invited us to be a part of that restoration, a part of the judgment that will purify us of everything unclean in us. We thank you for the sacrifice of your Son that has made it possible for us to not come under judgment, but to move from death to life. It is in his holy name that we pray these things. Amen.